All right, everyone, let's get started. We're a few minutes behind, so we're going to dive right in. Welcome. If you're a first-time visitor, we're glad you're here. We do this every week, and we hope you come back. We've been going through the Old Testament. We're in the book of Deuteronomy. We've come to Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is, as we've said in the previous sessions, this is the introduction to the covenant that's being reaffirmed. Israel's parents had been given this introduction. And so now, the next generation are receiving it and they're getting a chance to, uh, to, to ratify this covenant, to enter into fully, to confirm their relationship as the people of God, the covenant people of God. God is their king. They are his vassal. That is the whole dynamic of Deuteronomy is a covenant vassal treaty. So we have to read it through that lens first. Then we see the spiritual implications of that. But if we rush right to what does this mean for me? Or how do I keep these commandments? Or this and that. Then we actually miss the entire thrust of the book and what God's doing at a big picture in history. And that's always the emphasis that we do at this Bible study. If you've been coming here, it's always seeing the big picture because you can get lost in Bible verses and miss the Bible story. And that's one of the biggest tragedies of how we as American Christians have tended to be taught the Bible is in little uh, verses, chapters, uh, memory sections, instead of seeing the big picture of what God's doing. And when you see the big picture of what God's doing, then the little parts of it take on all that much more significance. And so that's what we're doing and that's what we're seeing in this. And now we come to Deuteronomy 6 and this is where Moses is speaking. Deuteronomy is a covenant treaty document, but it's also given in the form of three sermons that Moses is speaking. His farewell address. He is going to die. If you knew you were going to die and you got one last chance to speak to your friends and family, what would you say? That's what we're reading from Moses. He knows he's going to die. It's already been told in the last book in Numbers last year. He's going to die. This is it. This is his final will and testament. And so when, when you see Moses, when he appears angry, when he appears frustrated, when he appears passionate, that's why. He's not giving uh, just this you know, ethereal, ah, this is how you should act, my children, blah, blah, blah. No, he's going to die. And he's been with these people since they were babies. Literally since they were babies and came out of Egypt. He's watched them grow up. He's raised these people. He's shepherded these people. What was his job before he was called to take Israel out of Egypt? He was a shepherd for 40 years. For 40 years, he was a shepherd. Now, for the other 40 years, he's been shepherding these people. So the heart of Deuteronomy really comes through, and it's not detached law. That's why calling it just the law doesn't do it justice, because it's a passionate last will and testament sermon that Moses is giving his people and all in the form of a covenant treaty that he's wanting them to ratify with God for themselves. And so now we come to the heart or the beginning of what he's going to unfold in these coming chapters. Chapter 6, verse 1, it says, this is the commandment. NIV says these are the commandments, but the Hebrew is singular. This is the commandment. That is, the decrees and the laws that Yahweh, your God, directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess so that your children and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as they live. And how do they fear Him? 
by keeping all His decrees and commandments that I give you so that you may enjoy long life. This is the fear of God is not about being scared of God. God's enemies are scared of God. That's not fear of God. I mean, that's being afraid of God. Fear of God is like reverence for God. Obedience to God. If you don't obey your authority, you really do not fear them. You know, kids that just run buck wild when their parents are, you know, wherever. You're all in a restaurant or a store or something. The kids are just going crazy and the parents are just like, now Billy, that's not what we do. And the kid's just throwing stuff and being... That kid has no fear of their parent whatsoever. But many of you were raised in the generation where you so much as sneezed and got that look from mom or dad, you knew, hey, I'm in public. I need to, you know, I need to watch what I'm doing. That's how I was raised as well. Um, that's fear of your parent. Now, of course, that can be taken to an extreme and be afraid and there can be abuse and there can be all that stuff. But that's not what's going on here. This is legitimate fear, reverence for God. So, then he says, verse 3, Hear, O Israel. And hear means listen. Like, listen up, O Israel. Be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey just as the Lord God of your fathers promised you. They're looking at this land, by the way. They're standing across the Jordan River looking into the land they're going to possess. And now, this is the heart of the entire Torah. This verse is the heart of everything in the first five books. It says, listen or hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them or repeat them. It's a word that means kind of like engrave or stamp. or Impress them and repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. <clears throat> so this is not just a kind of think about this sometime. This is all the time do this. All the time remember these. He doesn't say think about this stuff when you go to synagogue. Think about this stuff when you go to church. Think about this at home. Teach it to your children. Not tell the Sunday school teacher to teach it to your children. No, you teach it to your children. Impress it. This is the covenant faith of Israel was not to be taught only by priests. It was to be taught primarily in the home. Church always begins at home. The family is the primary priestly temple unit, so to speak. And that's what God wanted for His people. When, when somebody asked Jesus, what's the greatest of all the, of all the laws, 613 of them, which one's the greatest? This is the one He said. Right, without even hesitation. This is the most important law. And then He went on and He said, and the other one that's just like it, and He quoted Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. This is on Jesus' mind. But this chapter especially is on Jesus' mind and throughout His ministry, and we'll see why. Because it goes on to say, um, uh, oh, oh yeah, love the Lord God with all your heart. So heart in the Hebrew, lavav, it is the not heart like what we think of, like Valentine. It's not, it doesn't mean your feelings. 
in Hebrew, the heart does not mean your feelings. It means your mind. Heart and mind. There's no, there's no word. There's, when they want to say mind in Hebrew, they use this word, which we translate as heart. When they want to say the thing that makes decisions, that's your heart. The things that, that generates or controls your will in the Hebrew mind is your heart. Later, much later, heart and mind became separate. But in this context, heart was all of it. That was your heart. And so, <clears throat> all of your mind, all of your being, all of your inner self, you're to love your God with that. Then with all of your soul, nefesh, that's actually your, your, your it's the word for throat, but it's your life. It's your, who you are. It's, it's what makes you, you. It's your soul. So that, love God with all, your, with all your inward being, with all of what makes you, you. And then the last one is translated by the NIV as strength, but it's really the word ma'od. And, it, and it's weird because it, it's not a noun. It's, it's the word very or exceedingly. When God says He saw creation and it was exceedingly good, tov ma'od, good, very. This is literally says, love God, love the Lord with all of your muchness or all of your veriness. And, and, it, and it means everything exceedingly. And so that got translated as, you know, all of your might in the Old Testament or, or, or King James and all of your strength. Uh, some traditions, later Judaism, the Targums that were written in Aramaic around the time or before the time of Jesus, they translated it as your wealth, like all of your possessions, what you own. So it basically covers everything. There's nothing's left out in this, in other words. And, and it, that's what we're commanded to love God with. Now, this is a treaty. And treaties in the ancient Near East are very interesting because treaty languages, whether they're Assyrian, whether they're Hittite, uh, whether they're Egyptian, they all command, the, if you read them, the kings are commanded or enter into agreement to love each other. The language of love is treaty language, and it doesn't mean have nice feelings, although that is part of it. Love means, in the treaty setting, be completely loyal to. So the king so-and-so would demand that the vassal such-and-such love this king and love his people as if they were brothers. Meaning, and then it would spell the stipulations, meaning be loyal to us serve, you know, live as if we are your own family. Like, it's a connection. So, it's not a feeling. This is not just love God. Like, think loving thoughts about God. That's not what's being commanded. Because you can't command a feeling. Feelings just happen. Or they don't happen. Love in Scripture is never reduced to how do we feel about something. It's always, how loyal are we to something? How, what do we do? Love is an action. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Love is always tied to obedience. It's never divorced from action. That's a much later concept that we've kind of, that's crept into our thinking. But it's very, 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 very unbiblical. Love is what you do, not necessarily what you feel when you're doing it. And Jesus would even talk about who, who, is, who was better at serving. The one who said, yeah, I'll do it, and then doesn't do it? Or the one who says, no, I'm not going to do it, then changes his mind and then goes and does it? Which one actually was a faithful servant? 
what God demands, what he wants is our hearts. And that doesn't mean our, just our feelings. Because there will be times, as the psalmists show, as the prophets show, when you don't love God in the sense of having nice feelings about him. Because sometimes you're angry at God. Sometimes you're upset with God. Sometimes you're disappointed in God. And sometimes you yell at God. At least if you follow the psalmists and the prophets. And that's okay, because that is all within the context of a loving relationship because you're interacting with the person. And they're still your God. Like Job says, even if you slay me, I'll still serve you. Meaning, I don't like what you're doing, and I don't like the fact that you're nowhere right now in my mind, but I will still serve you. That's love. That's loyalty. And that's what God's commanding here with everything, with all of our being. So then he goes on in verse 10. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities that you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then, when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery or servitude. Fear the Lord your God, serve Him only, and take your oaths in His name. There's an unfortunate paragraph break in the NIV right here uh, that that obscures the wordplay that he's saying. God took you out of the house of slavery, servitude. Now fear God and serve Him. You were serving Pharaoh. This is for three years ago, those of you that were with us for Exodus. This was the whole book of Exodus, if you remember. You were serving Pharaoh. You were slaves to Pharaoh. God freed you so you could serve Him be slaves to Him. And that is actually, ironically, the highest status or an exalted status is that of a slave if it's a slave to the only one who's worthy of being served. Which is why Paul would glory in calling himself a slave of Christ Jesus. Even though slavery was the lowest rung on the pole. So God is calling Israel to do that. To enter in that relationship because of what He's done. And He's telling them, when you get into this land, see, He's taking them into Canaan. And they're going to drive out the Canaanites, Hittites, Jebusites, Perizzites, all the ones that Genesis 15 listed in the promise to Abraham. Go back and read Genesis 15 always and keep that in mind as as you read through the conquest. But he's promised they're going to drive out the Canaanites as judgment on the Canaanites that's been held back for 400 years. And so he's saying now when that happens, once you are in this land and you do receive these things that you didn't work for, you didn't even really fight for it. I'm the one fighting for you. I'm the one giving you this stuff. Don't then forget who did it. You know, once you've made it, don't forget who brought you here. Because you'll be tempted to say, well, God, yeah, he was with us, but really we were the ones that did it. And God and Moses is pleading with them, saying, don't you dare think that, because it wasn't you. And so he says, do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God, and His anger will burn against you, and He will exterminate you from the face of the land. He'll do to you what He's doing to the Canaanites through you if you go after the Canaanites' gods and do the things the Canaanites did. That was the warning of Leviticus 18, 19, and 20. That's the warning that Moses is repeating here. Do not be like the people I'm sending you as judgment on. And yet Israel's going to do that very thing. 
Verse 16, do not test the Lord your God as you did at Massa. That was when the parents came out and they tested God. Can God provide us something to drink in this wilderness? And Moses, you know, God said hit the rock and he hit the rock and water comes out. And the people, they, they were grumbling. They were testing, well, God, can you really do? God had brought them out of Egypt. God, they, these were the people that had lived through the ten plagues. And then when they get to a place where they need water, they, they, the attitude was, te- well, alright God, it's time for you to really show up. As if He had not already done so in the entire Exodus. There's a difference between testing God and asking God to provide something. One is an expectation or a, I need you to show me before I'll stop complaining or before I'll really trust you. And the other is, hey, I really trust you and I don't see how we can get out of this. Can you give me what I need? Two different attitudes. It all has to do with the heart. And Moses is commanding them, do not do what your parents did. Don't do that. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees He has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that it may go well with you and may, you may go in and take over the good land that the Lord promised on oath to your forefathers, thrusting out all your enemies before you as the Lord said. And in the future, when your son asks you, what's the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? In other words, why do we keep this whole Torah thing? Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent miraculous signs and wonders, great and terrible upon Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But He brought us from there to bring us in and give us the land that He promised on oath to our forefathers. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive as is the case today. And if we're careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God as He has commanded us, it will be for us as righteousness. What God is, what, what, where to tell the people is basically to, what, what you're to tell your children in the future when they ask you, why do we keep these things, these laws? Why do we keep this covenant, this entire covenant thing that we're agreeing to? Because God saved us and brought us into His salvation. That's why we keep the commands. Law comes after grace. Law comes after salvation. They did not keep the law in order to one day be saved. That is a wrong belief. The the Reformers, Martin Luther and others, perpetuated that idea. It's not true. It's not correct. Israel never believed they have to earn their salvation. They believed we were saved and have been brought into covenant and therefore to remain in this covenant relationship we keep this law. It's a very different dynamic than trying to earn something. It was they live a life of gratitude because of what God had done for them. That's the heart of Torah. Now we know that this was on Jesus' heart all the time. One, because all of Scripture was, because He embodies all of Scripture as Israel's Messiah. But two, in particular, when He's tested in this very location by Satan, He goes across the Jordan River, out of Israel, into the wilderness, this is where He's going. Where Israel's receiving this covenant is where Jesus was going. That area. When Satan tempts Him, 
and quotes these passages from the Psalms to him about what the king should, should expect from God and, and how the king should act. And he quotes these passages from the Psalms and prophets that, that are like basically getting Jesus to act messianically. Jesus rebukes him each time with words from Deuteronomy. And two of those come from this chapter. Serve only the Lord your God. Do not put your Lord your God to the test. Why? Jesus knew Israel's history. They knew that Israel went astray once they started acting kingly like the other nations. That's when Israel failed. David started it. Solomon took it to new heights. And then everyone after Solomon went that way with about three or four exceptions. So Jesus knows enough. See, Satan knows Scripture, but he knows particularly which Scripture to pull out of context to make it seem like he's giving a scriptural promise. And that's what crafty wolves in sheep's clothing continue to do in the church today. That's why we don't teach verses out of context in this study. We teach the context of the passage so you can see it as it's given, which is how Jesus studied Scripture and understood Scripture and how everybody in Jesus' day did. So when Satan does pull a passage out of context and try to appeal to Jesus' kingly nature, his messianic calling, Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Hold on. I'm at the Israel stage right now. I'm in the wilderness because the Spirit has led me there because I am reliving Israel's journey in myself. And I'm going to get right what Israel got wrong. So as the one true Israelite, I am going to live according to the covenant that God gave with Moses. And I'm not going to do what our people did. I'm actually going to do the thing that, that Moses wanted them to do. And then he goes back into the land full of power in the Holy Spirit and starts driving out the darkness. Just as the other Jesus that we'll read about in the next book of the Bible, we call him Joshua, Jesus is his name, just as he went into the land and started driving out the enemies of God and bringing judgment. So Jesus, Joshua 2, if you will, is doing again what Israel was called to do. That's the big picture. That's the, when you step back and see what's happening. And then you can start to see why. Oh, that's why Jesus quoted these passages. It's not because he had memory verses stored up in his head. I mean, he did, but not as verses. He had the story in his head. He had the whole thing in there, the whole concept, so he knew what point in his mission he was. And so when Satan would pull things out of context, Jesus was like, no, 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 no. Let's take it back to where we are. Do you remember where we are, Satan? We are here on the plains of Moab. And this is where our people were given their Torah. And I'm going to go in and bring it to its conclusion by keeping it fully. So Jesus is the fulfillment. And this chapter was on His heart. And it's the heart, it's the core of Deuteronomy. The rest of the book, some Deuteronomy commentators have said, the rest of Deuteronomy is just unpacking this chapter. What it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. So that's what we're going to come to because now they're getting ready to go in to that territory and drive out those peoples. And so Deuteronomy 7 now is going to be specific because Moses is giving Israel not just their covenant agreement, but also their marching orders as an army. Remember the whole book of Numbers went out of its way to show Israel as God's army. These rabble of slaves that had been, been transformed into his army with him as the general at the center of the camp, leading the way as the Ark of the Covenant goes forward. So he's going to give them their marching orders. And it's going to sound harsh 
And it's going to sound to us like, whoa, wait a minute, that's not how you're supposed to do battle. But we have to remember He's giving them specific orders for these specific groups of people in Canaan whom He is sending them as the judgment on rather than sending a flood like He did in Noah's day or rather than raining down fire like He did on the cities of the plain. Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities. So God's judgment comes in many ways rather than sending a sickness or famine or something like that. He's, this is going to be a precision strike against these particular Canaanites, but more importantly against their whole religious pagan system which basically incorporated everything from orgiastic temple prostitution to child sacrifice. So it's not like, oh, they're not praying the right way, let's go kill them. That's how this passage is like these got abused later to justify everything from crusades to colonial expansion to all this stuff. No, this is, hey, they're offering their children in the fire in hopes that that will make their crops grow better. Hey, they're committing every type of sexual practice you can think of with everyone you can think of, man or animal, in hopes of getting a good return on their investment when it comes to their crops or their herds or their sheep. And, you know, it was just, we can't ever forget that element because when we read the conquest narrative, that gets glossed over and we just think, well, what did the poor Canaanites do? They did stuff that would make us just vomit today. <laughs> and that's what God's sending Israel to judge specifically. Not everybody who's not Israelite these particular peoples. And that's crucial to keep in mind. We'll pick up more on that next week though. We are out of time. So have a great week. Um, this week, find someone specific, personally, and invite them to this Bible study. Tell them, hey, there's a thing on Tuesday. I'd love for you to come with me. Let's fill this room up. We've still got more seats. We'll make room for even more. But that's my vision. That's Jeff's vision. The owner here wants this place to be packed out every week. But that, you guys have to do that. So I want you, that's your challenge this week. Specifically find one person and say, hey, I want you to come with me to this Bible study. All right? Those are your marching orders. Okay, guys, have a great week.